Welcome to Rising Leaders of New York with your host, David Zwerin of Hill & Moyne LLP. They present to you conversations with today's and future leaders of New York City discussing the challenges and issues relevant to New Yorkers. You can find this show at www.hillmoyne.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Now here are the hosts of Rising Leaders of New York. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Rising Leaders of New York. My name is David Zwerin. I'm the senior trial attorney here at the law firm of Hill and Moyne LLP, conveniently located at 2 Wall Street, New York, New York, right off the Wall Street station uh, at Broadway. And we are a plaintiff's personal injury firm. We focus particularly on labor law, construction accidents, and uh, premises liability cases. However, uh, I also get the wonderful opportunity to do this podcast and have a lot of really interesting conversations with some of the rising leaders of New York, people who are, I think, going to be on the forefront of the future of our city, of our state, and uh, really have a lot of interesting, innovative ideas uh, for the future of where New York is headed. And uh, I still have a very uh, appropriate guest on that topic today. Uh, it is my very distinct pleasure to welcome to the show Ethan Felder. Ethan Felder is a union lawyer. Uh, he also previously was a candidate for uh, state, state Assembly in uh, District 28 and nearby my, uh, my, uh, my home of Forest Hills. Uh, Ethan and I uh, actually had a, just had a chance encounter some uh, what was it, like six or eight months ago. Uh, come friends and uh, he's a very very interesting guy with a lot of uh, very interesting opinions and insights into uh, the future of New York and the, the world of politics and uh, and the world of unions. And uh, I think it's going to be a really really exciting episode. So uh, with that, I, it's my pleasure to welcome the show, Ethan Felder. How are you, Ethan? Good. Thank you, David, for having me. Uh, I feel humbled to be with you on this show and with the introduction you have uh, and the title of, of this, this show, Rising Leaders of New York. Um, I, who can forget meeting at a train station in Regal Park? <laughs> uh, you know, that, that it, it seems like it was just yesterday. And I'm so happy that a chance encounter while campaigning allowed us to develop a, a Friendship, relationship, and then bring us brings us here today. Yeah, so thank you. You uh, you were standing at the at the right place. Uh, that was my favorite Dunkin' Donuts in the morning. So nothing more tried and true in New York than the early morning coffee at Dunkin' Donuts before getting mm -hmm. on the subway on the way to work. <laughs> <laughs> it would certainly not be a coincidence to the people of that fine Dunkin' Donuts to see me go in it. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, how are you doing, Ethan? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well, you know, excited. Uh, I, I guess I consider myself an eternal optimist. And uh, I am, you know, uh, like you, doing the work of a labor lawyer, trying to make life better for everyday working people day in and day out. And yeah, I, th I think uh, it's quite a time uh, for our city uh, and beyond for our country. And, you know, I 
come at this in trying to uh, give back and make an impact. Um, you know, I got started um, as a community a activist, uh, grassroots uh, organizer, I guess one would say, um, in 2017 uh, when the presidential election happened. And like a lot of people, I felt that I needed to do more to defend democracy. And if it took bringing my neighbors into the public square, uh, that's what the moment demanded. And from that, I came to see that not only was um, grassroots uh, action necessary and worthy, uh, but it's not what those in power necessarily wanted to take place. Uh, so, you know, I think what I've always seen that, that, that there is um, the problem of entrenchment in our politics, which I think is not always spoken about, uh, but it, it's a real problem. Uh, uh, so I, you know, I think that, uh, there's a whole lot that needs to be done to try and strengthen democracy at a local level. And that's what, you know, that's what I think about. And some of the, you know, battles that I've taken on as a, a lawyer activist in Queens. Okay. Um, so I, I, you said some interesting things about, uh, about democracy and, and primaries. Uh, before we get into it, like, it tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, how did you uh, end up being a union lawyer? How did you, and then how did you end up starting to foray into the world of politics? Yeah, that's a good question. Very good question. So I had, when I, when I was in law school, uh, which wasn't too, too long ago, I did not anticipate or envision becoming a union side labor lawyer. Um, it was by dint of uh, my first job, uh, in Wall Street and banking, believe it or not, that I saw um, you know, an unbalance of power in the workplace. And it led me to want to be an advocate for those who don't always have voice in their livelihoods. And once I had that realization, it, it, it led me uh, down the path uh, by way of Albany, New York, to making my way into being a union lawyer and representing workers in, in various different industries and the conditions in which they find themselves. And that um, is still what I'm doing six years later. Uh, so that and uh, so that that's that's the long and uh, long and short story of how I became a laborer. I would say a non-traditional path. Uh, I, I, you know, for a lot of labor lawyers, there's perhaps a a, a f familial connection to organized labor. Um, that that's not the case for me. Um, but there, for me, there's a, a deep commitment to uh, fighting for workers' rights and dignity, and uh, affording. Uh, people to have a voice and respect on the job. So what are some of the big issues you've seen in, in your practice as, as a union lawyer where your clients, well, whether the unions or their actual constituents really need that voice where they're not having their rights heard or where uh, they face oppression and not being able to get uh, 
basic rights met by their by their employers. Well, I, I think what we just lived through um, with uh, since 2020 and the pandemic, yeah. when uh, some of us were able to work from home in the relative safety and comfort of our living rooms, uh, while um, a great many others uh, were still showing up to work and facing the most dangerous of conditions, whether it was on subways, on buses, or servicing buildings, or in hospitals. Um, so being a union lawyer representing um, a building service workers union in the height of the pandemic uh, really shined a light on uh, why the union was necessary. And at the same time, uh, you know, how people were very much getting sick and giving and, and in some cases dying um, in order to keep buildings running and our economy going. Yeah. So that, that was, I would say, uh, another uh, quite a uh, incredibly emotional and powerful moment in time where we saw, you know, who basically keeps our economy going. Uh, in a time when, you know, those who run corporate America, the most powerful organizations, um, you know, weren't necessarily showing up to their offices yeah. and doing and and running running the show. You, who can forget the sirens that we heard in all parts of New York during the height of the pandemic, and who was, you know, ushering the people to the emergency rooms? So I think like. Uh, that that moment in time was revelatory for a lot of people and this whole notion of essential workers and essential work um really came into light so i i would i would point to that as uh, a real an ongoing issue in terms of creating a fair and just economy for all uh who work for a living and would did that experience lead you to eventually try your hand at a state assembly in part, yes. I thought that uh, at a certain point, I, I wanted to advocate for workers uh, uh, by becoming a candidate and trying to make uh, changes through official public office. That's that. That's exactly right. Um, so, yeah. In a word, yes. I wanted to. Um, you know, I had been elected a district leader, which is a, a party elected party position in Queens in 2020 uh, against uh, the machine incumbent, the machine backed incumbent. And I had served as a district leader for two years and furthering the end of fighting for workers and renewing democracy at a, at a local level. Uh, I decided to take the plunge and become a candidate for the state assembly. Well, I guess we'll skip over the outcome, which obviously uh, wasn't the one you were hoping for. But uh, talk to yeah, your look, I, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't think it's something to, to gloss over. It's, you, read, you read a great campaign, and as you, as you mentioned from the start, it's it's hard to, uh, to it, remove long entrenched incumbents. Uh, so I, I will. So I will. So I will say not only it is it not only is it hard to to to, to beat a long dynamic long entrenched incumbent, but one that comes from a dynastic political family um, is not an easy task. But I would say to, to those who have never run for office, as I had not done until that point, 
running for office and qualifying for the ballot is no easy feat unto itself. It's remarkably difficult the amount of hurdles you need to jump through in order before in order for any voter to cast a vote on your behalf. What are those hurdles? What goes into getting what on? Goes in, what, what goes into, what goes into eventually being on a primary ballot? Exactly. So you need through your through your network of friends, family, others, you need to raise a certain amount of money. In order to be, you know, competitive, you probably need to raise around, you know, maybe at the at the at the at the start before you talk to any voter, around thirty to fifty thousand dollars, something like that. Which for like the average normal person, it's like, how the how how do you do that? <laughs> In order to pay an election lawyer, um, or and get um, you know, a, a website palm cards, get a team together, um, you know, qualify for the ballot, get 500 legal signatures. This does not just happen. It, it takes a whole lot of energy, planning, drive, and uh, determination in order to um, just get to the point of being a nominated candidate for public office. So I, I say that because I do think there's something to be said um, about making it easier for people to run for office. There should be some hurdles and that no one can should just be able to say, oh, I'm running tomorrow and I should appear on the ballot and, and, and not, uh, this is great. Um, but I, I do think that it is too hard for the everyday citizen who, for the right and noble reasons, is stepping up to serve uh, to engage in running for public office, which, you know, in a sense, a lot of people think of it as some, you know, very strange, odd thing. But there are a lot of public offices out there. And every year there are many thousands and thousands of people who run for public office. And, you know, I think in the 2022 election cycle for the state assembly, I think it was around 95 to 98% of incumbents won re-election. Now that, you know, says a lot, that statistic says a lot onto itself. I'm not so sure in a healthy democracy, oh, nearly 100% of incumbents won re-election. So I think there's a lot to be said about um, making things uh, more um, open and accessible and for the voting public to be willing to engage with grassroots candidates and perhaps offering their support. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it that, I guess, that voters have such a hard time uh, considering a new candidate for local office after they've had an incumbent for some period of time? You raise a very good point. Uh, New York City, I think, in particular, doesn't seem to have a, a great big history of uh, changing out our incumbents. I think the last huge one that comes to mind where that happens with AOC, but uh, right. the incumbents are, are hard to change. So for, at, at the New York City level, with the city council and the mayor, there are term limits, and there are arguments for and against term limits. Yeah. You know, there is a, a natural, um, you know, movement of officials in and out of those seats for city council and mayor and controller 
unlike at the state level in New York State for the Assembly and the uh, and the Senate. I think that there. I think that when you have power um, entrenched in the hands of legislative leaders and other political power brokers, there's obviously an incentive to preserve and protect power onto itself. And that gets channeled in all sorts of ways towards protecting incumbent office holders in, in a way that has a way of earning uh, the votes of citizens, whether it's money, endorsements, even just like um, coordinating political action and public events. Um, you know, those who are very good at, 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 at holding office are, tend to also be very good at retaining their power, <laughs> in my experience. So, you know, there are all sorts of reason, reasons why um, the voting electorate tends to um, reelect those who are already in office, yeah. at least as I've experienced it and as, as the data show in New York State. So do you, having run a campaign and, uh, you know, and run a very good one, but come up short, do you find this experience discouraging or is there something to the experience of, of primary in candidates just to have a competitive primary? I 100% believe that, that primaries are not only necessary, they are essential. Uh, because if you don't have um, a primary, well, then you don't have, by extension, a contested election. You just have who's there. And what incentive is there to not only do a whole lot, but also engage on the issues in one's community and in the city um, in any substantive deep way, if there's no competition for the seat that you hold. Uh, so toward, towards that, furthering that end, I think that, you know, public financing of campaigns and uh, public matching programs that give um, grassroots candidates a leg up uh, if they're able to show a certain amount of grassroots support are very important and and very um, uh, very important and, and absolutely necessary in order to um, have a healthy local democracy. Um, I'll say as an example in my in the assembly district that I ran in um, and the and the associated council district between 2010 and my election to district leader a whole decade, there was not a single contested election in that assembly or council district in 10 years. And this was, and I count my election for a party position. So it was only until the, the 2021 city council primary 11 for 11 years, there was not a single contested election for a public office in, in, uh, in a large swath of central Queens. And that speaks to it, the what is old style Tammany Hall machine politics that very much still pervades um, where those who are, are part of that apparatus are selecting that those who will eventually carry the party banner in elections going forward and ultimately in most cases hold um, public offices. I don't mean to, 
it make it seem like it's all like, you know, that, that, that elections and votes and voters don't matter. But if you ignore these, the, the, these entrenched political forces, then I think that that's a, that's a, a very um, distorted view of how local politics works in, in at least the borough of Queens. Changing, but still very much a uh, political reality. How is it changing? I think that there is, you know, I think with, uh, you know, I, I think with, uh, with changing politics, demographics, and um, I do think AOC's election mattered in in, in fostering um, a different political culture and and um, a grassroots democracy. Um, so I, th I do think that that mattered, and that's what led me to uh, support her when no one really believed that she had much of any chance against uh, the incumbent who she was running against. Um, so I, I do think that, that that played a role. And I think that, you know, I think machine, the machine politics is atrophying in the sense that it needs, a, I think those who benefit from it are getting on in age and it's having a little bit of trouble, you know, uh, recreating itself. And one of the things that I find it really lacks and one of the downsides of it is it doesn't allow or, or favor assisting new upcoming leaders within the Democratic Party with resources, training, skills, support, any political party needs to be like investing in its future leaders and talent. But when you have, when you have like a culture that's so averse to new people who aren't, you know, ready to wait their turn, you, you get, um, you know, I would say a politics that very much does not represent or look, or you get candidates and office holders who don't necessarily look like, the up and coming constituencies and demographics that exist within Queens. And that's why I would say things are slowly but surely changing yeah, mm -hmm. on the score. And do you think there has to be a, a continued change to to move the uh, the city forward? And, and what are some of the big issues you think that are confronting the city that uh, that have to be addressed and are they going to be addressed by the city with the people we have in power now? Yeah, I, I, I don't think that, I think there absolutely is a need for change and, and new faces and voices um, who are bent on, who are geared towards serving people and the community uh, rather than just holding office. I think we, you know, we have a, a climate crisis that's in the here and now. We're the most, one of the, you know, the largest emitters of uh, carbon and pollution in New York City. And there's a whole lot that can be done that should be done in terms of reducing emissions from our public buildings and our uh, public schools in terms of investing in climate jobs in order to retrofit and solarize uh, buildings. I think there, you know, we as labor lawyers see that there's a whole lot of, let's just call it 
bad, insecure jobs out there and a need for increased labor protections in our economy right now. And don't forget, the New York City hasn't recovered uh, the jobs that were lost, all the jobs by any stretch, the jobs that were lost in the pandemic. Um, I see that every day coming into, into Manhattan. Exactly. Uh, how do you, what are your thoughts? How do you think the city gets people to go back to work in offices or are they ever going to do it? Well, I, I yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. I think, um, you know, ridership is about two thirds um, what it was uh, pre-pandemic. I think the mayor is, is certainly um, going the right direction in trying to assure uh, everyday New Yorkers that they not only should feel safe, but are safe riding the subways. Um, and those who work uh, um, on the subways also are and feel safe. Um, I think that, you know, the, the I think there for a portion of people, remote work and fl flexible work arrangements are going to be the new norm. Yeah. And in some sense, that that's that's a good thing. But in terms of you know the urban core of Manhattan, you know we need to be thinking about innovative ideas in terms of perhaps converting you know certain offices into what's needed. We have a dearth of affordable housing, yeah? and we and that's only going to be uh, remedied through uh, new supply and construction. Yeah? And the city needs to to further that in order to make sure that this is uh, a city that people can remain in. Yeah? You know, I see this among my friends, people moving to Long Island, people moving out in order to start families. Um, you know, this city, if it's going to remain vibrant, has to be able to um, not only have uh, the the culture that keeps people here in the city, but also the ability to raise families um, and sustain uh, sustain families. So, you know, I think that there are a whole lot of pressing issues um, that require um, fresh thinking, new energy, and I'm looking forward to being part of that conversation. Very exciting. Um, well, Ethan Felder, this has been a a great, great pleasure. I'm very excited to uh, hear what the future holds from you. I'm sure whatever it is, you're going to be on the forefront of pushing a lot of change in the city. And uh, and whatever happens, thank you for uh, you know for your commitment to bringing new voices to politics and at least making sure those who have been in politics a long time are listening to their constituents and thinking about how they have to adapt. Thank you, Dave, for having me. And uh, I, I, def I certainly appreciate this opportunity uh, in this conversation. And, uh, you know, I look forward to many more conversations to come. It's my distinct pleasure. Uh, Ethan, if uh, you want anybody, if you're looking for uh, our listeners to get in contact with you, uh, do you have any uh, information they'd like to have? Uh, sure. Uh, folks can reach out to me. Uh, my email address is ethan.felder at gmail.com. And, uh, Definitely look forward to uh, to being in touch. Very good. Well, uh, Ethan Felder, it was really a distinct pleasure having you on the podcast. Uh, until next time, my name is David Zwerm with the law firm of Hill & Moyne LLP, personal injury attorneys here at 2 Wall Street, New York. 
And I look forward to being back with you next time with another rising leader of New York. Have a good one, everybody. You've been listening to Rising Leaders of New York, hosted by David Zwerin of Hill & Moyne LLP. You can catch prior episodes at www.hillmoyne.com and on YouTube, LinkedIn, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Thank you for your positive reviews, comments, and sharing the show with others. 